Sound Words, Christian Magazine, Volumes 41-50. Republished by Irving Risch, host of Down to Earth That Heavenly Minded Podcast. Exodus, The Book of Redemption and Relationship. A. Shepherd. We will go through the entire book in 24 parts. Part 20 of 24. Exodus chapter 22. In chapter 22 we continue our consideration of the judgments introduced at the beginning of chapter 21 and extending to chapter 23. There is, however, an observable difference in the character of God's judgments from Exodus chapter 21 verse 33 onwards, for these deal mainly with the possessions or property of the children of Israel. The most scrupulous observance of God's demands is enjoined, as in the case of their persons, to which our attention has already been drawn, and in which is displayed God's tender and compassionate care for the lives and persons of his people. We see, therefore, that every aspect of their lives is taken into account with a comprehensiveness of detail which is truly remarkable and worthy of God, who, as the psalmist says, is the God of my mercy, Psalm chapter 59 verse 17. By these ordinances God would instruct his people, who were in covenant relationship with himself on the ground of law. As to the solemn character of all that was righteously required of those whose continuance in the goodness of God was determined by their unswerving obedience to those requirements. The character and measure in which God has been pleased to reveal himself, whether under law or under grace, is that which determines the conduct of those who stand in relationship with him. So that we should reflect and express the character of God according to that relationship. While these judgments reveal the true character of the law, inflexible righteousness with its inescapable demands of restitution and penal sanction, for there could be no evasion of their responsibility. Yet the spirit in which the children of Israel dealt with each other, according to these divine instructions, was expressive of the beautiful features of grace and compassion. The following words sustain the truth of this assertion, they were not to vex a stranger, or afflict the widow and the fatherless, Exodus chapter 22 verses 21 to 22. No interest was to be charged to the poor who borrowed money, Exodus chapter 22 verse 25, and a neighbor's pledged garment was not to be kept overnight, Exodus chapter 22 verses 26 to 27. To this last God adds this beautiful expression, for I am gracious. As has been already stated, there are self-evident truths presented which are specially suited for private study. But there are certain points which merit closer study since in these there is a strongly marked relevancy between what is enjoined on the children of Israel and the circumstances in which the people of God find themselves today. Let us therefore consider these points with the desire that the Spirit of God will increase our knowledge of that which will enable us to walk worthy of the God who calls us to his own kingdom and glory, in a world where, the wicked, saith, in the haughtiness of his countenance, he doth not search out all his thoughts at, there is no God. Psalm chapter 10 verse 4. The fearful result of this is that man, in daring presumption by parliamentary enactment, has virtually set aside that which God has established for the protection of life. In Exodus chapter 21 verses 12 to 17 certain offenses to which the penalty of death is attached to given, the case of murder being specifically mentioned. This, however, is no new enactment as Genesis chapter 9 verses 5 to 6 unquestionably God who alone knows the heart of man, and has pronounced it deceitful above all things and incurably wicked, when investing Noah with the government of the earth, provides in the most solemn terms, which no human laws can set aside, for the preservation of man's life, at the hand of man, at the hand of each, the blood, of his brother, will I require the life of man. 
Whoso sheddeth man's blood, by man shall his blood be shed, for in the image of God he hath made man. In Genesis chapter 4, after Cain had slain his brother Abel, God asked him, Where is Abel thy brother? To which Cain insolently replied, I know not, am I my brother's keeper? So God, in giving these instructions to Noah, places man's responsibility for the life of his fellow man beyond all dispute. Life belongs to God, and in the exercise of his prerogative as the giver of life demands the forfeiture of the life of one who has taken a life he cannot restore. And there can be no mitigation of the sentence. Even though one guilty of murder should lay hold of God's altar, verse 14, this would avail him nothing, as is seen in the case of Joab, 1 Kings chapter 2 verses 28 to 34. All the misplaced philanthropic movements of men, with their substitution of men's ideas in place of God's established order, display not merely an ignorance of his ways but a deliberate rejection of God's righteous claims. Behind it all are the evil machinations of Satan, the adversary of God, a rebel greater far than man himself. There is, however, in Exodus chapter 21 verse 13 a notable exception made, according to the words, but if he have not lain in wait, and God have delivered him into his hand, I will appoint thee a place to which he shall flee. This provision is dealt with in fuller detail in Deuteronomy chapter 19 and Numbers 35, where the cities of refuge are spoken of. How precious is the grace, and the compassion of the heart of God, expressed in Deuteronomy chapter 19 verse 6, lest the avenger of blood pursue the manslayer, while his heart is hot, and overtake him, because the way is long, and smite him mortally, whereas he was not worthy of death, since he hated him not previously. It would appear that in this statute, mentioned in Exodus chapter 21 verse 12 and 13, we have a typical allusion to the guilt of the Jewish nation in the slaying of their Messiah had they not lain in wait. Time and again we are told of how they counseled together as to how they might destroy Jesus, yet in grace, which surmounted and surpassed the murderous hatred of their hearts. This crowning act of rebellion against God is declared to have been done in ignorance, even as Peter declared, I know that ye did it in ignorance, as also your rulers, Acts chapter 3 verse 17. In grace their awful deed is not regarded as willful, but is attributed to God having delivered up Jesus by his determinate counsel and foreknowledge, Acts chapter 2 verse 23. How often had they sought to take Jesus, but this could not be until God himself delivered him into their hands, as Jesus said to Pilate. Thou hadst no authority whatever against me if it were not given to thee from above. But through the atoning death of the Lord Jesus, Peter was able to point the way to the city of refuge, saying, Repent, and be baptized, each one of you, in the name of Jesus Christ, for remission of sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit, Acts chapter 2 verse 38. This blessing was not only for the Jew, but also for the Gentile, as Peter said, for to you is the promise and to your children, and to all who are afar off. As many as the Lord our God may call, Acts chapter 2 verse 39. In the superabundance of his grace, grace that reigns through righteousness, God has given us by two unchangeable things, his word and his oath, a strong consolation. Who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us, which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, Hebrews chapter 6 verses 18 to 20. And we are great forerunners see, in his own glory there, yet not ashamed, with such as we, as firstborn, all to share. In Exodus chapter 21 verses 15, 17, the solemn sentence of death is passed on those who are guilty of smiting or cursing their father or mother. 
by this God sanctions the exercise of parental authority, and the children's regard for that authority as flowing from filial affection. Since this is included among those other enactments, it clearly shows the importance God attaches to these filial obligations, and how gravely he regards any breach in conduct coming short of this. Paul, in writing to Timothy concerning the last days, when difficult times shall be there, mentions specifically disobedience to parents, and without natural affection, as characteristic of these last days. The fact that believers in Christ are not under law, but under grace, does not relieve us of these obligations, since the great point to be pressed is that of obedience to a God-given authority. Under grace, according to the teaching of Paul in the epistle to the Ephesians, we rise to greater heights in our observance of these things, as being animated by heavenly motives and springs of action. The Spirit of God gives the following exhortation, Children, obey your parents in the Lord, for this is just, Ephesians chapter 6 verse 1, and to the Colossians, who were in danger of being entangled by legal ordinances, the word is. Children, obey your parents in all things, for this is well-pleasing in the Lord, Ephesians chapter 3 verse 20. It is with deep reverence that we refer to the child mentioned in Luke chapter 2 verses 48 to 52, whose earthly parents had sought him sorrowing, and to his mother's gentle reproof, child, why hast thou dealt thus with us? Behold thy father and I have sought thee distressed. He replied, why is it that ye have sought me? Did ye not know that I ought to be occupied in my father's business? How remarkable is this statement! Revealing to us the amazing thought that even as a boy of twelve Jesus realized his relationship with the Father who had sent him into the world. In this connection how precious are the words brought before us in Proverbs chapter 8 verses 22 to 31. Where the Lord Jesus as wisdom makes known his relations with the Father in the solitude of eternity before ever the worlds were created. How wonderful are his words, Jehovah possessed me in the beginning of his way, before his works of old, when he appointed the foundations of the earth, then I was by him, his nursling. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him, rejoicing in the habitable part of his earth, and my delights were with the sons of men. In the light of this transcendent glory. How wonderful are the words of Luke chapter 2 verse 51, and he went down with them, and came to Nazareth, and he was in subjection to them. In Exodus chapter 22 verses 1 to 15 the thought of restitution is brought to our notice. A very necessary principle since there can be no evading of responsibility on the part of one who has to do with the righteous. Lord that loveth righteousness. In this God has shown not only his concern for the guarding of the life and persons of his people. As already noted, but also a concern for their possessions, demanding restitution from the offender as being accountable to him in their relations with one another. This raises a question of deeper import and far-reaching significance, for if God regards the robbing of one's fellow man in such a grievous light, what of our infinitely greater sin of having robbed God? A sin of which all men are guilty, and what can we bring to God as restitution? It is utterly impossible for bankrupt sinners to make restitution to God, but another has done so, one who was not only the sin offering and the burnt offering, but also the true trespass offering, Leviticus chapter 5. And in Leviticus chapter 14 both a sin offering and a trespass offering were necessary. In the case of a Nazarite being defiled, the same two offerings were required. While the trespass offering is in effect a sin offering, it has more to do with the government of God, whereas the actual sin offering has to do with the holiness of God's nature. The Lord Jesus is the true trespass offering in Isaiah chapter 53 verses 10 to 12 and also in Psalm chapter 69, where, in prophetic language, he says, 
Then I restored that which I took not away. This is a very precious aspect of the death of Christ, the one who, stood between us and the foe, and willingly died in our stead. Our debt has been paid fully and adequately. Every demand against us as sinners has been righteously met, every accusing voice is hushed in the presence of that all-atoning and all-sufficient sacrifice of our Saviour and Lord. How worthy he is of every tribute we can lay at his blessed feet. Yet, Saviour, thou shalt have full praise, we soon shall meet thee on the cloud, we soon shall see thee face to face, in glory praising as we would. How blessed it is to sit in restfulness of heart in the unclouded light and joy of the presence of God, and say, if God be for us, who against us, who shall bring an accusation against God's elect. It is God who justifies, who is he that condemns. It is Christ who has died, but rather has been also raised up, who is also at the right hand of God, who shall separate us from the love of Christ, neither death, nor life, nor any other creature, shall be able to separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus our Lord, Romans chapter 8 verses 31 to 39. The solemn sentence, Thou shalt not suffer a witch to live, Exodus chapter 22 verse 18, arrests the mind by reason of its severity, God thereby indicating his abhorrence of that which, in its true character, was a trafficking with evil spirits. Many derisory remarks are made regarding this repelling evil, either to mitigate its dreadful influence or disprove its actual existence. But the word of God speaks of it as one of the features of the great apostasy in the last days. But the Spirit speaks expressly, that in latter times some shall apostatize from the faith. Giving their mind to deceiving spirits and teachings of demons speaking lies in hypocrisy. 1 Timothy chapter 4 verses 1-2 Throughout scripture there are solemn warnings given as to the avoidance of the various forms of this great evil and strong denunciations against it because of its satanic origin. It is recorded of Manasseh, the son of the godly Hezekiah, that he built again the high places that his father had broken down, and built altars to all the host of heaven in both courts of the house of the Lord, and he used magic and divination and sorcery, and appointed necromancers and soothsayers. He wrought evil beyond measure in the sight of Jehovah to provoke him to anger, 2 Chronicles chapter 33 verses 4-7. Consider, too, Saul's grievous sin in consulting the woman at Endor who had a familiar spirit, after having put away those that had familiar spirits, out of the land, 1 Samuel chapter 28 verse 3. In his extremity, as his enemies gathered together their armies, Saul inquired of the Lord, but God had already rejected him, and he answered him not, neither by dreams, nor by Urim, nor by prophets. In having recourse to this woman of Endor, Saul commits this heinous sin in the face of his own proscription, and in inexcusable disobedience to the command of God. Only to hear again from Samuel the reason for his being rejected by God, 1 Samuel chapter 28 verse 18. Samuel had already said to Saul, for rebellion is as the sin of witchcraft, and stubbornness is as iniquity and idolatry. Because thou hast rejected the word of the Lord, he hath also rejected thee from being king. 1 Samuel chapter 15 verse 23. How necessary it is for us to accept God's estimate of what is obnoxious to him and calls forth his unsparing judgment. The outstanding characteristic of the religious systems around is unbelief, which, in its essence, is descriptive of those who have not hearkened to the word of God. This is not a mere passive state, but a deliberate, willful rejection of God, as having come under the power of him who is a greater rebel than man himself, the ruler of the authority of the air. The spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, Ephesians chapter 2 verse 2. By him they are seduced to probe into things unknown and unseen through the agency of evil spirits.
in this ordinance, or statute, God has, by the very severity of the judgment, recorded his utter detestation of that which is essentially evil and destructive to the souls of men. Another solemn sentence, brought to our notice in Exodus chapter 22 verse 20, is, He that sacrificeth unto any god, save unto the Lord only. He shall be utterly destroyed. Is it not a solemn reflection that the nation whom God had sovereignly chosen out of all the nations of the earth, that were so richly favoured and endowed, should so early in their history be guilty of the most flagrant idolatry? In Exodus chapter 20 God had spoken these words, I am Jehovah thy God, who have brought thee out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of bondage. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. Thou shalt not make thyself any graven image, thou shalt not bow down thyself to them, nor serve them. Exodus chapter 20 verses 2 to 5. With these words graven in our thoughts, what a solemn scene is opened up before us in chapter 32, as we witness the complete contradiction of them, as though these words had never been written. God tells Moses, in Exodus chapter 32, to go down. For thy people, not my people, which thou hast brought out of the land of Egypt, is acting corruptly, they have made themselves a molten calf, and have bowed down to it, and said, This is thy God. Israel, who has brought thee up out of the land of Egypt. Exodus chapter 32 verse 7 and 8. The Spirit of God confirms the guilt of the people in these words, they made a calf in Horeb, and did homage to a molten image. And they changed the glory into the similitude of an ox that eateth grass. They forgot God their Saviour, who had done great things in Egypt, Psalm chapter 106 verses 19 to 21. May we profit from the seasonable admonition, implicit in all that God has caused to be, written for our learning, for, as in water face answereth to face, so the heart of man to man, Proverbs chapter 27 verse 19. We may not be guilty of bowing down to a God of our own devising, like gold or silver or stone. The graven form of man's art and imagination, but there are other idols ever seeking to steal our hearts away from him, of whom the Apostle says, Yet to us there is one God, the Father, of whom all things, and we for him, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, by whom are all things, one core. 8-4-6. The greatest and most subtle idol is self. How we need to be warned of this, since the Apostle, speaking of the features of the last days, mentions as the first thing, for men shall be lovers of self, too Tim. 3 to 2, and every human resource is being coordinated and applied to enable men to reach this unworthy end. Paul, in writing to the saints in Colossus, warns against idolatry, and proposes the only effective remedy, mortify, or put to death, therefore your members which are upon the earth, and covetousness, which is idolatry, Colossians chapter 3 verse 5. Covetousness, as another has said is greedy, unsatisfied lust, the craving of a heart unsatisfied with its portion, and true of many in Paul's day, whose God is their belly, and whose glory is in their shame. Who mind earthly things, Philippians chapter 3 verse 19. How precious it is to turn to him who is our great exemplar in this as in all things. How sweet is the savour of his ointments in Psalm chapter 16, and how fragrant is his precious name, an ointment poured forth so that the virgins love him. Speaking as the dependent man, he says, Preserve me, O God, for I trust in thee, then, in referring to other gods, he declares, Their sorrows shall be multiplied that hasten after another, and I will not take up the names into my lips. Not only does he willingly comply with the law that prohibited all other gods, he would not even take the names upon his lips. As the true Levite, the dependent man declares, Jehovah is the portion of mine inheritance and of my cup. 
Jehovah was his assigned portion, what rightly belonged to him, and also his cup for present enjoyment. Eating and drinking indicate participation and enjoyment. Are we enjoying our portion as those whose cup is running over, enjoying the rich, unmeasured bounty of love's providing? To the dependent one, his portion and cup were one, and Jehovah was the measure of both. He had nothing besides, and he wanted nothing more. In the light of this may the words of the beloved Apostle John assume a deeper significance to our souls, children, keep yourselves from idols, 1 John chapter 5 verse 21. He also by the Spirit exhorts us, love not the world, nor the things in the world. If anyone love the world, the love of the Father is not in him, 1 John chapter 2 verses 15 to 16.